walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Let's pray. God, if ever there was a moment in history worthy of a few weeks' reflection, (laughs) it's this one. The moment when, in your grace, you decided to enter back in to humanity's story, pick back up redemption's work, and save your people through the Messiah. We are here this morning because of this day in history. Because you came down. You sent your son. You went to death. You rose up again. And you give us a new ending in Christ. Thank you for all that you've done, Lord. We pray today this wouldn't just be mere words from my mouth into their ears. We pray that these words would have force like they did back in the book of Acts where the word was spreading. It couldn't be contained. It grew. It was, it was the subject of verbs. <laughs> Lord, I pray that your word, because it comes forth from you, would have a power in our midst here this morning. Power even to save sinners and power to strengthen weary saints. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, it's a pleasure being here, getting to do this with you guys. I was sitting in the back worshiping, just thinking, this is, this is awesome. I'm so glad. I, I'm amazed that I get, I get to come into a room and people come and we worship the Lord together. And then I get, I, I could hardly go to bed last night because I, I, I get to preach tomorrow. Some nights I'm not, I'm not always like that on Saturday night. Some nights I go, oh, I have to preach tomorrow. Last night was a good night. I was, I, I, I'm so pumped. Just love this. So thank you again for the opportunity for bringing me in here. I know it's only been now, what, three, three and a half, four months. We're new in this relationship. This is a new thing. I kind of like what's going on. Hopefully you do too. Um, let's get into our text this morning. As we move forward in our analysis of this story, we're going to focus this morning and next on verses 8 through 13. Six verses. And of these six verses, I want to ask five questions. 
And these questions, I think, are critical for us to ask and answer if we're going to truly understand what God is up to in inaugurating this age of fulfillment in the coming of His Son. I want to say, okay, God, why are you doing things the way you're doing them here? What are you trying to say to us? What are you communicating in the fact that you probably could have come in any way you wanted? You could have gotten this whole thing started any way you wanted. Why in this way? What are you saying to me here? Five questions. The first four are what we're going to be focusing on this morning, uh, Lord willing. The fifth one will be for next week in a sermon all on its own. Because I think it's so important, especially for the season we're in in this church. Here are the questions for you. First, why this couple? Kind of answered that last week, but there's a little bit something new we'll add to it this week. Why this couple? Why Zechariah and Elizabeth? That's verses 8 and the first part of verse 9. Then why this place, the temple in Jerusalem? Why this place? That's verse uh, probably the second half of verse 9. Third question, why this hour? Why this hour, the hour of incense, we're told in verse 10. Fourth question, why this angel? Down uh, later in the story, we're told it's Gabriel. But we see the angel show up in verses 11 and 12. Why this angel? And then the fifth question for next week, why this way? In other words, through prayer. And you see that there in verse 13 and the focus of prayer in this passage. Why is God coming down, picking up His redemptive activity in history in this way. This couple, this place, this hour, this angel, this way. Now, before I go any further, um, I should point out that behind these questions is one, one dominating presupposition, okay? And that is that God, our God, is totally sovereign over history, over the plan of His redemption. He is in control. And I'll tell you why that presupposition is important for these questions. These questions become nonsensical. If God isn't actually in control, He's just kind of, He's kind of an opportunist trying to work where He can and, okay, I see a moment in history where maybe I could make something happen with these people in this way and I'll, I'll do my best. I'm not sure. And so he's just kind of doing what he can with what he has to work with. If that's the kind of God we have, then asking why, why, why all these details this way really doesn't matter. He's going, because that's all I had. That's, this is the time I could do it. What do you mean why? But if God is sovereign, if he could have done it any way he wanted, then the question, why this way? becomes very important because I believe he's trying to communicate to us in the way he picks this whole program back up. All of a sudden, these questions start to brim with significance. He could have advanced his plan with any couple, any place, at any hour, any messenger, in any way. Why? Why do it this way? Now, I've mentioned this before. Uh, I'm not just inventing this presupposition, okay? Uh, Luke is actually handing this 
presupposition to us in this in the way he's telling this story. In all of his gospel and in Acts, the sovereignty of God is huge. The sovereignty of God, the God of the plan. We've talked about that a few weeks back. This is a huge focus for Luke. He wants us to see God is in control. Every detail matters to this God because he's in control of it all. Even the way he tells the story in our immediate context of Elizabeth, Zechariah, and John, Luke is, is, is giving us this presupposition. I'll show you, uh, based upon the way that Luke, uh, highlights this, 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 these days and times. Okay? Let me show you. You'll see what I mean. Verse 20, this is when Gabriel's talking to Zechariah and he says this. This is chapter 1 still. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. There's a day, there's a time, there's a plan. God is doing something specific here and he has days and times in mind. Then in verse 57, that time comes. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And then in verse 80, still having to do with John, now we're talking about his ministry and what God had foreordained for him to come and do. It says this, the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. It's as if we're watching this, this kind of um, redemptive drama taking place in this cosmic theater all according to the, the, the plan of the, of the divine playwright. Okay? And if that's what's going on, then my five questions should give us a lot of insight. A lot of illumination. They're meaningful. Uh, and we will see in the answers that, that God uh, knows what He's doing here and every detail matters to Him. And He's communicating to us with them. So, let's begin then with my first question. Why this couple? Verses 8 and 9a, the first part of verse 9 is what we'd read for that. But as we ask this question, we realize it does reach back into our analysis of verses 5 through 7 last time. But verses 8 and 9a, like I said, give us something new. And even connect us a little bit with my introductory notes. The God of the plan, the sovereign God of the plan. Let's read this in verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, When his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot. We'll stop there. We give quick context on the priesthood in the first century, okay? It was divided into 24 divisions, if you will, at this point. And these uh, different divisions, so you, you, we read that uh, back up in our text. He was in the division of Abijah. That's what Zechariah is in, okay? There's 24 of these divisions. There are a ton of priests, like 18,000 priests, okay? And they would each serve, each division would serve in the temple for the, the three weeks of the three major festivals. Everyone would be there for that because a lot of, of Israel would come in for those events. Um, but then... The, uh, each division would also serve for two weeks out of the year in the temple. Okay, so they kind of were on this rotation among the 18,000 priests and, and the 24 divisions. They, and this was Zechariah's time to be uh, serving in the temple. And then within the 24 divisions, 
there would be also uh, kind of these subdivisions, okay? Because if 18,000 priests, 24 uh, divisions, you have about 750 priests in one division, okay? So you're dealing with a lot of men here, a lot of guys that, that want to get into the, into the action, right? And they want to be a part of serving in the temple. And so they would divide up these tasks into all these minuscule things because they had so many people. And there was one task, one task, highest honor of them all. And that's why they drew lots for it at this point. Um, And Zechariah was chosen. And we'll see what that task is, but it would have been the high point of his career to get to do this. The priests, from my understanding, were only allowed to do this once, their entire life. Okay? And Zechariah chosen on this day. Now, he was chosen, we read, for this high honor by Lot. He said, what's Lot? Nobody knows, really. We don't know. We know they were sacred objects, probably like dice, something like that. You roll the dice, and somehow they would tell you yes or no, or would choose one person over another. That's about as much as we know, okay? And you say, now wait a minute. We're just talking about a sovereign God. We're talking about a God who's in control. Now we're talking about rolling dice. That sounds to me like Vegas, like I hope I get lucky, like like random coincidence, like winning the lottery. That doesn't sound like the God of the plan. That sounds kind of like, oh, we'll see what happens. Oh, Zechariah, it's your lucky day, buddy. Come on down. You're the next contestant. It's like, what is this? We have to understand what God has said about these lots. Israel. Proverbs 16.33 The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is random? No. From the Lord. Do you hear that? You can cast the dice, that's fine, but I determine how they fall. That's what God says. So, in essence, as they're casting lots for who's going to go into the, the, the holy place in the temple, it's as if God says, I choose Zechariah. God of the plan. He has a couple in mind here. So he brings this man in and he makes uh, him and his wife Elizabeth a promise. He said, believe it or not, (laughs) I know you're barren. I know you're advanced in years. You're going to have a son. And your son, he's going to go before my son, the Messiah. And so we ask then, okay, back to my question, why this couple? Why choose this couple? And we got to this last week, but it's worth repeating here. He chooses a couple barren and advanced in years, right? So that everyone looking in, when they see this son is born, says, okay, this is not the work of man. This has to be the work of God. He is saying to us, you know what, humanity, 
You are not going to be able to redeem yourself. You can provide nothing for what I'm about to do. Barren wombs, old age, no hope. God of the impossible comes in for nothing will be impossible with me. 137 of Luke. Now, with, with each answer to my four questions, I'm actually going to be constructing a sentence. Okay, that will become what is actually the title of this message. So why this couple? In a word, to begin my sentence, God. I want to highlight God. Why did he choose this couple? So that he is the one that is foregrounded as the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who is made plain. Sal- or that uh, Salvation belongs to me. So we begin our sentence with the word God. Now, let's move on to the next question. Why this place? This is the second part of verse 9. We continue to follow the story. Zechariah is chosen by Lot by God's decision to do what? And then we read it. To enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So the priest at this point would move through the outer courts of the temple. Okay? And he would go into the holy place, not the most holy place, where the, the, the presence of God was thought to dwell behind this final separating curtain, but the, 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 the little court, the sanctuary right out in front, the holy place, and that's where the altar of incense would be. But he's going into the temple here, and, and he's getting as close as he ever would get to the, the presence of God, Right? Hence the high honor, hence only once in your life, 18,000 priests, will you get to do this, if ever. And he's going in. So now we get to the second question. Why this place? Why the temple? Why would God choose this couple, this man, to go into this place? And to answer this, you've got to know, what was the significance of the temple for Israel? What was the significance in Israel's history? What was the significance of the temple for God? Now, there is much that we could say here, but if I were to simplify it, I think, at bottom, the temple represented God's dwelling with His people. Okay? There are actually places in the scriptures, in fact, all over the place, where the the temple is called the house of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I live in my house, right? This is his dwelling. This is his dwelling presence, his dwelling in the midst of his people, Israel. Israel knows that the Most High doesn't actually live in a house made with hands, that's Acts 7.48, or that even the, the heaven or the highest heavens can actually contain Him. They know that he, he, is, he is omnipresent, He is everywhere, He is above it all, transcendent, and yet, still this temple represents some significant aspect of His presence, His dwelling with His people. This is a very, very big deal. This is why when the temple is destroyed, what does that say to Israel? It's God left us. We're done. And no God in our midst anymore. It's a big deal. So, now, interestingly, 
This dwelling in their midst, dwelling in the midst of Israel, is actually the goal of the Exodus. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but Exodus 29, verse 46, says this. Why am I bringing you out from Egypt? Here's why. I'm the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Here's the purpose. That I might dwell among them. I want to be with you. (laughs) I want to be in your midst. This is why he calls Israel his firstborn son. Go tell Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go. I want a family. Come on in. You're welcome here. So, here's what happens. He takes them out, right, in the Exodus, and He sets His presence in their midst in the tabernacle as they're going through the wilderness. The tabernacle was essentially just the forerunner for the temple that they would establish permanently there in Jerusalem when they entered the Promised Land. But it's God's presence, God's dwelling with His people. And I think it's important for us for a moment to see God's templing presence in its broader canonical context. Okay, we, we think of temple, right? We're reading the story with Zechariah. We hear temple. We think of temple as kind of operating the, the middle of the story with Israel. It's kind of limited to there. There's no temple beginning, no temple in the end, whatever. And, and, and we miss the fact that actually what God was doing with Israel, He was doing with a view to His original work and His original goal with Adam and His coming work that He would complete in His Son. Okay? So I want you to see this for a moment. The temple isn't just significant for Israel. It's significant for us. And it's been that way from the very beginning. Am I too close? I keep hearing these sounds. You all right? There's like an ocean waves behind me crash. I don't know what's going on. Um, okay, let me, let me... You remember in... Um, in Genesis 3, remember the description. God walking with Adam and Eve. God walking in the garden, right? And when they sin, they're hiding from His presence, right? He is there with them from the beginning. This dwelling, it might not have had a temple structure and building, but what the temple would later signify was already there. He is dwelling in their midst. And He is after merging heaven and earth together, God's dwelling with man's dwelling. That was the goal from the very beginning. But Adam aborted the mission. So God intervenes with Israel, right? And here's where you have the, the tabernacle and the temple. He, 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 he intervenes and He said, that original goal? We're still going to get to it. But now let's get to it this way. And he's pointing back to the original Edenic uh, place. Well, you want to know how I, I think it's pretty clear? You know all those descriptions about the temple and all this stuff you're reading? Have you ever noticed how much garden imagery, how much cherubim and this sort of stuff are weaved into everything and decorated in all this way? He's pointing us back to the beginning of the story. Saying that presence, that dwelling I had with you there, let's, let's move towards that again now, even after the fall. Okay? There's the temple there in the middle of this story. But we go on. Because this temple was anticipatory. It wasn't complete. It was temporary in its form. Read the book of Hebrews and you'll see that even more clearly. But God... He has always been after the dwelling of God, being with the dwelling of man. 
And so what we find if we follow the storyline of Scripture into the new heavens and new earth is what? God's dwelling is now among us. So what he aimed for from the beginning, what he pictured in Israel with the temple, is what he will finally accomplish at the end. Read this in Revelation 21. This is really awesome, you guys. You've got to read this. Go there. Revelation 20. It's the last chapter, last book in the Bible, near the last chapter. You could probably find it. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. I just want you to hear this and know this, this is where God is taking us. says this Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city what's the name of this holy city the new Jerusalem hmm. coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, here it is, the dwelling place, or in the Greek, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away for this incredibly positive picture it's quite interesting there are a lot of negatives look at this there's no sea no tears no death no mourning no crying no pain and if you keep reading down in verse 22 you want to know what you see no temple no temple look at this revelation 21 verse 22 and i saw No temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. He is the temple, right? And here's another crazy uh, uh, little little (laughs) reality for you. Back up in verse 16. You read some of this stuff, you might think, what is going on? He's measuring the city. They're talking about all the gold and all the, the, the stones that this place is made out of. What is the deal? I wonder if you notice when they're measuring the city. Verse 16 says this, Its length and width and height are equal. We say, that's weird. So this new Jerusalem without a temple is a perfect cube. What's going on here? You want to know what it's doing? You want to know what God is saying? Where's the other perfect cube in the Bible? So I heard? Holy of Holies. Most holy place. As they're building the temple, you want to know the dimensions of the most holy place where the presence of God dwelt? And only the high priest could go in once a year with all these garments and all this blood. Oh my gosh, or I fall down dead. That holy place cube and they're saying here new heavens new earth new jerusalem the whole city the whole earth the whole new creation will be the most holy place because god is there no temple it's all a temple you see that's where god is taking us it's as if his presence will reach saturation point 
It just doesn't get any thicker than that. Now, let me stop for a moment. I just want to reflect on this reality. It's it's incredible to me that God's driving goal from the beginning. Think about this with me. His driving goal from the beginning is to be near you. We wonder, what's the point of my life? And what am I doing here? And which career do I choose? And which girl do I marry? Or boy, should I date? Or all these, what's the what's God said, you know why I created you? You want to know the point of your life? Be with me. I want to be near you. You see, a lot of times, we live like orphans, Right? Humanity kind of runs off without the one they were created for, their Heavenly Father, and tries to kind of do this thing on their own. We kind of get that stiff upper lip going. I'm tough. I'm a man. I can handle this. I don't know what girls do. Do girls get stiff upper lips? And Bella does this thing we call the stink eye at the table when we ask her to eat things she doesn't want. But I don't, you know, you, get, you try to get tough. I've got to do this on my own, thank you. And we know there's something wrong with the orphan mentality, right? I mean, that's why there's amazing people in our church that are saying, I see orphans and I want to adopt them. There's something wrong about about someone who doesn't have parents caring for them. We've got to make that right. Get into my house. And those of you that live without God, who kind of walk away from Him and do the orphan thing, you feel that. Something's wrong with this. I can't handle this life on my own. Like Ian was saying at the beginning, I'm messed up. We were created to flourish under His care in His presence. That's what this is telling me. End of reflection. I don't want you to be that orphan. I want you to dwell in his house. Right? But in between Israel's temple and Jerusalem, this picture of Eden and things and trying to regain his original goal, and then this temple earth of the new Jerusalem that we see in Revelation, something happens. God has to do something to step towards that goal. What is it? He sends his son. Right? The coming of the Christ. And that's where we get back into Zechariah's story. The coming of the Messiah. The coming of Emmanuel, God with us. Here's the reality. Here's, here, here's what we're shown. Instead of, with the coming of Christ, instead of now the priest having to get all cleaned up and carefully come near the, the most holy place and make sure everything's right. Now, you know what happens in the story of the Gospel? The holy place opens up and God Himself comes out to meet us. I will dwell with you. Jesus is the temple presence of God. And He's making a new earth and a new humanity that will live in that presence forever. Okay? So, why this place? Why this couple now in this place? If this place always stood in Israel's story for the presence of God, the dwelling of God with man, what better place for the angel to show up and say, you know what? All that this thing symbolized, I'm sending the presence of God to you soon in the Messiah. He will come and He will dwell in your midst. I will come, I will dwell. Right? What better place to make that announcement than in the temple. So again, constructing our sentence here, 
Why this place? Building off our last word, God. Now we see God with us. So why this couple? So God is foregrounded. Only he can do it. Why this place? Because he's doing it so he can be with us. Let's keep going. I don't even want to look at the clock. Don't look back there. Don't look back there. Third question. Why this hour? Why this hour? There are more details to mine for meaning in this narrative. Um, As we keep reading in verse 10... We're told that all this is happening, not only with a specific couple in a specific place, but even at a specific hour, at a specific time. Okay? Verse 10 says this, And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. You say, okay, what does that mean? I have no idea. Well, we'll get into some of the significance of that Next week, the hour of incense. Incense was symbolic of of prayer. That's going to be next week's message. But here's the thing important for this morning. This hour of incense coincided with the hour of the burnt offering. Okay, it was offered around the same time that the the burnt offering would be would be given on the altar outside of the of the um, holy place. Okay, this is in accordance with what was laid down in Exodus 29 verses 38 and 39. Says this: This is what you shall offer on the altar: two lambs a year, or I'm sorry, two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly or continually. One lamb you will offer in the morning and the other you will offer at twilight. So, beginning of the day, end of the day, sacrifice. Every day. This is how God wants wants, uh, them to operate within this temple. Every day, sacrifice. Beginning and end. We have reason to think that Zechariah is probably coming in in the evening sacrifice. The reason for that is it also coincided with the hour of prayer which would account for the multitude that's outside the temple praying at this point. So the evening sacrifice, most likely in view, Zechariah comes in at this hour with the burnt offering uh, on the altar outside. He's offering incense inside, altar with the sacrifice burning outside. Now, why? Why this hour? Why this hour? With the idea of a continual or perpetual sacrifice, we start to see another layer added to the temple symbolism, do we not? So the temple, fundamentally, yes. Is it communicating that God is wanting to dwell in the midst of His people? Absolutely. My dwelling is here. I love you. But how in the world can God continue to dwell in the midst of a sinful people? Sacrifice, right? So this is why in the middle of this, 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 this thing that symbolizes his dwelling, he kind of sets at the center of it this sacrificial institution. Things have to die constantly, day by day by day by day, if we're going to make this thing work. Because I am holy, you are sinful. Sacrifice enters the picture the moment that sin enters the picture. We could go back to the garden for this. You remember, 
You remember what should have come to Adam and Eve, right? The day you eat of it, the day you eat of the tree I forbid, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Or in Pauline language, the wages of sin is death. But Adam and Eve transgress, and do they die? Yes and no. Spiritually, absolutely. Physically, totally? No. Something else dies in their place, it would seem, as God comes in, walking in their midst, covers their naked shame with the skins of an animal that He kills. I will cover your sin and I'll continue to talk, continue to reveal, continue to move towards my original goal. But now, because of sin, what is required? Sacrifice over and over and over and over and over again. Sacrifice. I want you to get this. I'm not dwelling with you because you're the greatest among the people. You were the least, he says to Israel. I'm dwelling with you because I'm good, because I love you, and I want other nations to see and know It's all of grace here. I wonder if you've ever tried to read through the Bible. And uh, you start off, you know, maybe in January, right? Like most people do. Oh, I got to, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. And that's a noble desire. And you probably are charging through January. And then you hit about maybe the end of Exodus, uh, if you made it that far, and then Leviticus. By Leviticus, you're going, oh my gosh, I don't see the point of this. Lord, this just isn't devotional anymore. (laughs) You may go, how do I pray? How is that applicable to my life? And what, there's all these details, right? And you get bogged down in them. A lot of these details focus in on what? Sacrifice. Over and over and over again. What does it talk about? You gotta kill this animal in this way on that day. Kill this animal in this way on that day. Then you gotta kill multiple animals on this day. On this day, you really gotta kill a lot. And then you come in and you do this. And then you see all this blood everywhere, you guys. And we just, we gotta picture this. You gotta imagine being there. I mean, it talks about blood being sprinkled on the, the garments of the, of the priests when they're being ordained and, and touched to their, their thumb and their ear and their, their toe. And then it's talked about how you go in and you take the blood and you, 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 you would, you would, you would pour it out at the base of the altar or throw it on the sides of the altar or put it on the horns of the altar and, and then you would, you would sprinkle it in front of the holy place and sprinkle it on the, on the mercy seat and blood just flying everywhere. It's crazy. You step back and you go, what or who in the temple wasn't bloodstained? Death everywhere. So let me get this straight. This is the place of God's dwelling with man, and yet this is the place. I wouldn't even let my kids go there and watch what's going down. It sounds like stuff people will do on October 31st. It really does. It sounds like a horror movie. And you want to know the cold fact, the cold truth about this whole thing, the whole temple complex. God is saying, you're right. You are right to see this as a horror. You are right. It is a horror. What it pictures for you, and I hope you get it, is the horror that your sin is in my sight. 
We just can't sugarcoat this. I'm sorry if there's young kids in the room. You just can't sugarcoat it. The kids would be there. They would see this. Lambs are being killed. What is this? What is God saying here in these offerings, in these sacrifices, day by day, continually? If I'm going to live in your midst, it's going to be by sacrifice. So these sacrifices, these sacrifices, this temple, holds together two incredible truths about God. He is holy. He is gracious. He is holy. He cannot look upon our sin with favor. It is detestable. Back in Genesis 3, the ground should have just fallen out and the flames of hell engulfed. That's it. That's it. We should already be there. I am holy. Exile is what you deserve. Punishment is what I deserve. That's the truth of the matter. He is holy. But the temple also tells us, the sacrifice also tells us, He is gracious. I will not let your sin have the last word. I am coming for you and that original goal of dwelling in my presence forever will be accomplished through sacrifice. Two correlating truths. You got the two truths about God, two correlating truths about man emerge at this point. The temple and its sacrifices also hold these in balance. I am sinful. But I am forgiven. Take those one at a time for a moment. The centrality of sacrifice is meant to keep before us the deplorable nature of our sin. Okay, So why day by day, day after day, day after day, day after day, day after day, on some days more than just the two, on every day probably, why? See, here's the, here's, here's, the, here's, the, here's the truth. It takes a steeled conscience to put your hands on a lamb, on an animal, in solidarity with it, and then cut its throat. Feel its life. Just go out from it. The blood all over your hands, all over the floor. Blood. It takes a steeled conscience to do that and then walk away saying, my sin's no big deal. I'm a good person. I mean, God will accept me for who I am. Sure, I make mistakes, but no big deal. No, you say, I am wretched. Look at what God says my sin deserves. Look at what my sin has done. There's carnage in this place. Because of me. And so the, 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 the application point is this. Are, are, we, are we trifling with sin in this church, in our hearts? Am I? Is it just kind of we get used to the grace and oh, he's always with us. It's the temple. Yeah, this is just kind of we go through the motions. We do our thing. We're just kind of playing with it or are we keeping it in front of our minds? God places sacrifice at the center of the temple and at the center of the divine human relationship so that we know our sin is horrible. 
or we want every little bit of it out, or we just kind of, where's that line again? Is this adultery? No, I'm just looking. Is this murder? No, I'm just being sharp with my tongue. Oh, get out of me. Right? The wicked stuff in this heart. Sacrifice helps us there. Yes, it does. But then there's another side of it, right? Not only am I sinful, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. As I feel, as I feel that life come, I'm probably scaring her. Is she okay? As I, see, I look at your little face. <laughs> as I feel the life come out of that, that animal, not only do I feel, oh my gosh, I am a horror of a man. I also feel, I cannot believe he would accept this in the place of me. There is no double jeopardy in heaven. It was paid by the sacrifice. Therefore, he will not exact that payment from you again. Do you understand? There are some in this room then, not not cavalier and casual with their sin, but overwhelmed by it and burdened by it and broken by it. And no way could I go into the holy place. Are you kidding me? I don't want to go to church. If you would have heard the conversation I had with my spouse or my kids, I don't belong here. The sacrifice would say otherwise. He would say, listen, yes, I am holy, but I am gracious. Get in here. You are welcome. You are welcome. This is how the orphan finds a home, right? That analogy kind of breaks down that I gave a little earlier because it's not like we're all these orphans that wicked parents abandoned, right? We orphaned ourselves. We left a good parent, a good father, and orphaned ourselves. I will be king. This is why my kids say no, right? It's not because they want to be orphans. It's because they want to be kings. But in aiming to be kings, we make ourselves orphans. And God says, okay, I see your sin. I raise it a sacrifice. Now get back home. So it's here in the temple. At the time, most likely, of the evening sacrifice, with the hungry flames consuming that altar outside, or consuming the the sacrifice of the unblemished lamb outside, that, that the angel shows up to Zechariah and announces the coming of a forerunner. You want to know what this forerunner is going to do as he goes before the Messiah? He's going to announce to the whole world what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why this hour? Because Jesus is the final sacrifice. He would be the fulfillment of all that the temple stood for in its dwelling, presence of God, and all of its sacrifices and priesthood and everything else. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's John's Testimony of this Messiah. 
I'll breeze through this last question here in just two minutes. But let me add to my sentence real quick. Why this hour? We have God with us. Now we have through sacrifice. Why this couple? Only God can do it. Why this place? He's doing it so He can be with us. Why this hour? The only way He can be with us is to come and offer up Himself. Sacrifice. Fourth, final, why this angel? Why this angel? You say, really? You can find something significant in this angel? (laughs) I don't think I'm just making this up. I think this is very important, and I'm sad I only have a couple minutes to do it. But let's read verse 11, and I'll show you. It says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And then in verse 19, this angel identifies himself as Gabriel. I am Gabriel, he says. You say, I, I don't get it. Uh, what, what's the significance there? Well, let me ask you this. Do you know when the last time was that Gabriel shows up in the Old Testament? You know the last time? That, my man. That's right. It's the only place he shows up, to be honest with you, yeah. Daniel 9. Daniel 9. You want to know what's going on in Daniel 9? You should read it. It's basically a replica of this story here. You have Daniel who's in exile, a place of exile. He sees God's word. He's praying. That's what Zechariah would have been doing in the temple. Okay? Zechariah would have been interceding for his nation. That's what Daniel's doing as he's uh, probably looking towards Jerusalem, like we're told in Daniel 6, that's how he would pray, looking towards where the temple used to be. Well, now Zechariah's in the temple, okay? And he's interceding there for his people. And we're even told in Daniel uh, 9.21 that that, uh, he's praying at the hour of the evening sacrifice. So same time. So you got you got the same same place in view, same time in view, the same aspect of prayer in view, and then you want to know what happens. So Daniel in exile, praying, interceding, saying, "God, what is going on with this with this exile thing? I read in Jeremiah seventy years, and this would be up. Let's do this." You want to know the angel that shows up to Daniel in that moment? Gabriel. You want to know what Gabriel says? Okay. All right. God knows that you want to come out. Let's 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 get you out of exile. That's fine. We're going to let you rebuild the temple and go back to Jerusalem, but we're going to do more. We're going to do more than that. It's going to take longer, not just 70 years, but 70 times 7 years. Long period of time. But here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do away with all that caused the exile in the first place. This is verse 24 of Daniel 9. This is what he's going to do. I'm going to finish the transgression. Put an end to sin. Atone for iniquity. Bring in everlasting righteousness. Seal both vision and profit. And anoint a most holy place. I am going to take away sin. Bring in righteousness forever. It's going to be a little while. Not going to happen right away once you rebuild the temple. Give it some time. But it's going to come. And it's going to come in the most unexpected way because he goes on to say, an anointed one will come and he will be cut off and have nothing. Anointed one in the Hebrew? Mashiach, Messiah. 
the Messiah will come. He will be cut off and have nothing. And in that, I will usher in everlasting righteousness and put an end to all sin. This was hundreds of years before. And curtain just drops on that scene. Gabriel's out of the story. Curtain raises up. And when does he show back up again? But with Zechariah doing the exact same thing in basically the exact same place. And Gabriel says, you know what I foretold back then? It's, it's on its way now. Let's do this. What a day in the life of Zechariah, right? Every detail matters. Let me finish my sentence. Why this couple? God. Only He could do it. Why this place? He did it so He could dwell with us. God with us. Why this hour? The only way He could dwell with us was through the sacrifice of His Son. So God with us through sacrifice. And this Son would come, put an end to all sin, and usher in everlasting righteousness. God with us through sacrifice forever. We'll be with Him forever because of what He has done. Amen? Let's pray. God, I, I'm praying that just like the cross, the sacrifice was the center of the temple, the center of history, it would be the center of our own lives here today. Jesus is everything. That's why every detail leads us to Him. Every detail and every story in the Bible is leading us to Him. It's just all roads going to the same place, away from myself towards His glory and His grace. Jesus, please lead us there again, we pray. It's the most amazing thing that You are so far above us, Lord, beyond what we could even comprehend. And yet you're right here. You have made us your temple. You fill us with your spirit. The spirit that would cause any anyone who would enter into that place to just drop dead if they weren't perfectly spotless. And only one man at that. That spirit is in us. And you don't kill us. You help us thrive. You help us flourish. You help us change. You're renewing us in the image of Christ. And we know it's because He died in our place. The penalty is paid. And we are free to be with you. Adopted into your family. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. Thank you. You are with us through sacrifice forever. Jesus' name, amen.